letting everybody know at uh, if you're listening to this through an audio format, this won't apply to you. So please let your mind drift. Uh, for everybody else, uh, during the first 15 minutes or so of this recording through Skype, um, Patty's audio sync didn't match up to her her lips moving. So if you're watching this in the video, I will try what I can to fix. And uh, I may not even have to fix anything and the recording I may find is perfect. But anyway, um, please bear with us and it will get better. It's just unfortunately one of those things when dealing with Skype and remote access. So thank you. And maybe it's God's way of telling me to think before I speak. <laughs> I don't think so. Uh, <laughs> all right. Hello, everyone. This is your co-host, Stu, and I'm here with the paranormalist Patty Wilson. And Patty is going to give us stories today on Bigfoot. And this one I'm really looking forward to. So, Patty, take it away. It's all yours. Well, thank you. So I wanted to ask you, Stu, what are your thoughts on Bigfoot? Um... I have many different thoughts on uh, Bigfoot and the different varieties, you know, like the, uh, uh, the, the, the skunk ape, the, uh, the, the other, you know, uh, the Yeti, uh, just all, all different kinds of things of that type of cryptid, you know, the, the bipedal cryptid. Right. Um, there can't be all that many stories and the physical evidence without them not existing. The one piece of physical evidence we're missing other bodies. That's true. So. And there might be multiple reasons for that. So mm -hmm. I'm also in the camp of there's multiple types of Bigfoot. Um, there's physically speaking, there's five toes, four toes and three toes, the skunk ape. <clears throat> and um, then you go on and there are, I believe there are, you are ones that are attached to UFOs that seem to be coming from that genre and they are connected. And then you also have ones that are not even physically there and we can talk if we don't get them in this week we'll get them in another week because there's actually a good deal of evidence of ones that literally pop like a soap bubble when they're approached and they're not and that, i actually talked to um stan gordon is a good friend of mine and stan and i had a conversation and so did brian and terry seach and i and both of them put forward basically the same information that that particular type of bigfoot is never heard about on tv ever you are never going to catch an episode of any TV show that talks about them. Even though there's a huge logging of them in the data and the literature. Um, if you go talk to real experts on it who are real Bigfoot hunters and what have you. And the reason that they don't do it is because the physical <clears throat> scientist ones that are out there, the, you know, the Jeff Melgrams and people like that, they don't want to deal with that issue. <clears throat> They're having enough trouble proving that there's a bipedal creature walking around in the woods. So to take it out and to extrapolate it into that realm is to them causing people to become more skeptical and go, yeah, right. These people are just crazy. They're talking about a Bigfoot that when it gets shot, pops like a soap bubble. You know, they're nuts. So they're staying with the, the tried and true physical. And we're going to talk a little bit about a whole bunch of different kinds. Um, and I, I just find it really fascinating. I've always found it fascinating. I wrote um, Monsters of PA. And during that period of time, I did a lot of research on Pennsylvania's cryptids. And they're much more varied than we are aware. So, But I wanted to start out with some historical sightings because... You know, people talk about, and I've heard this criticism, that, UF, that UFOs and Bigfoots are all um, recent developments, speaking of historical timelines, but they're not. Um, going back in the United States, which is where I'm going to stick for most of this episode, um, in the United States, Daniel Boone, um, who was in the 1700s, had a sighting and would write about it and talk about it and it would be recorded. There's a book called the um, Daniel Boone, The Life and Legend of an American Pioneer by John Mack uh, Farragher. I hope I pronounced his name right. And in this um, book, he had interviewed people who knew Daniel Boone. And for those who don't know, um, Daniel Boone was from Pennsylvania originally and his later years, he would settle in Kentucky for a long time because his daughter moved there. But he was originally um, a Pennsylvanian, and he, prior to the American Revolutionary War and in the Revolutionary War, he was a, a teamster, a mule running a mule train. So that's what that's what he did when he was really young. 
And, um, but he writes, he talks about a story and, and uh, Farragher writes about a story that was just really interesting. So the story goes that um, after a meal, Boone was asked one night um, if there was a story. You have to remember people had different type of entertainment. They didn't have TVs and cell phones and stuff. So after you, you had dinner at night, people would sit around and talk and chat and share stories and <clears throat> swap tales and what have you. So after dinner this one night, um, Boone was back in in um, Kentucky for a little while visiting some people. This is when he's an older gentleman. And um, he was asked if he had a story. And if he, <clears throat> excuse me, I apologize for my throat tonight. It just started. Anyhow, he asked if he had a story and um, he begins to talk. This man who's sitting at the table with him basically calls him a liar and says, you know, I don't believe none of this crap and blah, blah, blah. And it really upsets Boone. Well, the rest of the group in the tavern that night shush this man and they get him to leave and he gets aggravated and he stomps out and they want to hear the story and he won't tell it. He's insulted because his word is his bond. And I understand that. Yeah. Yeah, he, he was very insulted um, and, and I'm sure humiliated because he's an older gentleman. He's had, um, you know, a good life and everybody has trusted him. He, you know, your word is your bond. And I'm still of that school. And so being called a liar in front of an entire group of men was hugely humiliating. But anyhow, he sat silent the rest of the night and he said when they'd press him, he'd say, I don't like to be in a crowd. And he just sat there quietly and sipped his drink and minded his business. Well, um, after everybody started to leave, the son of the tavern keeper, who was a teenage boy, and Boone seemed to take a shine to this kid. He was a nice kid, and he talked to him quite a bit. And the tavern keeper's son said, you know, Mr. Boone, that story is going to tell. Could you tell it now? There ain't nobody else around. And Boone said he would. And so he sits down and tells him the story of what's called a Yahoo. Now, a Yahoo is a bastardization of a Yahoo. I say it sounds the same, but it's spelled way, way differently, which was a Native American word for a large hairy man. I mean, people go into the Native American languages. There's probably two or three different words in almost every nation's languages for these creatures. And so he's talking about back home where he had lived for all these years and he was sleeping um, out in the woods. He had seen this little cave and he was uh, needed to take shelter so he decided he would park it in that little cave for the night. I mean he'd slept rough before so it wasn't a big deal and he goes to sleep and in the middle of the night he wakes up with the shadow of a figure over him and it startles him and when he gets up it scoots out the door of the cave, the opening of the cave and is gone. And he tries to convince himself that it was just a, um, a figment of his imagination being out in the woods again after being living soft so long, you know, and tries to talk himself out of it. Um, but the next day he gets up and he's decides he's going to stay the next that night and another night, just give himself a rest. I think it was probably rough to walk that far. And he's just going to take a break for a couple of days, catch his breath and give his feet a rest and his legs. And then he'll finish on his journey. So um, he's, he stops that day and he goes off and just kind of takes a little bit of a walk down along the creek bank, you know. And when he comes back, something's rooted through all his stuff. And he thinks, there is somebody around here. There is. But when he finds the footprints, they don't look like a man's prints. They're larger than a man. They, they're missing a toe. They're just different. And he don't know what to make of it. So he sort of settles in and he thinks about it. And he, he remembered the night before that whenever this thing was, it had it came with a smell. And now he can sniff it faintly in the air again. So he begins to think, there's just definitely something going on here. There just is. And... He's sitting there and he's thinking about it. He thinks, I'm, I'm just going to go to bed and that's going to be the end of it. And he goes and lays down for a little bit. When he wakes up again, everything's been moved. He hears the breathing of this thing. He smells this thing. And 
it scares him. He lets off a shot and the thing takes off and he leaves. And when he says that he could see it in the light of the fire and what he saw was a hairy man, a hairy naked man, um, but not a man, more like um, a monkey. He, he could reference a monkey. Remember, the great apes would not be found until the 20th century. So that would be like the closest reference point he would have. And he would talk about it um, from time to time. He told more than one person about these. So it's an interesting story and it's really interesting because it has, you know, his stamp of approval. Several people talked about it. He wrote about it in his journals. Um, so we know that something happened to him out there. Something where something was rooting through his stuff. It scared him. And I really think that what was going on is he might have taken shelter in its, its home. Or, or nearby, and it sounds like there's just just a great deal of curiosity. You know, what is this thing? You know, what are all the things that it has? You know, let, let me take a look at this stuff. So um, I just I just found it really interesting. Um, and then we're going to go on to Daniel Boone. I think that this one from Daniel, excuse me, from Davy Crockett rather. Davy Crockett. Uh, we all know the story about Davy Crockett. You know, born on a mountaintop in Tennessee and what have you. And he would become this great orator and the senator from Tennessee. But what we don't know about Davy Crockett is what really drove him to the Alamo. What drove Davy Crockett to the Alamo is the fact that he lost two elections in a row. And he felt abandoned by the people of Tennessee. So um, he ended up deciding that he was gonna go to Texas and make a new life in Texas because he felt the people of Tennessee had betrayed him. He had represented them so vigorously and they had celebrated him so much. And then when he needed their support, they moved on to newer fish, you know, and it, it was hurtful to him. So uh, he decides to go out there. Now Crockett had a brother-in-law by the name of Abner and um, he would write letters to him and like he would write in his journal, but they'd be letters to Abner. And then eventually he'd get to a place where he could um, mail them and then he'd tear them out of the journal and send them to Abner. There is a letter that I would like to read you part of because this is his. Um, so Crockett says that he's to his, his brother-in-law, Abner, that, you know, you're not going to believe me. It's a crazy story. Um, and. He says, but I had a I had an encounter with a creature that was the shape and the shade of a large ape man. And he says, describes it, and it sounds very much like a uh, Bigfoot. And then he says, um, the thing that makes this completely different than every other Bigfoot story you're ever going to hear. He says, the beast was so um, frightening that he literally stopped, spit his food out, just stopped and stared at it. And the creature turned and stared at him. And then it talked to him in English. Yikes. Never heard this in any other Bigfoot story in my entire life. Me either. <laughs> so here's what he says it, tell, it told him. He said, the beast spoke to him and warned him of events that were to occur at the Alamo where Crockett would die six months later. And this is a quote now. Abner, it told me to return from Texas, to flee that fort, and to abandon this lost cause. When I began to question this, the creature spread upon the wind like the morning steam swirls off a frog pond. So it dissipated and floated away. Interesting. Yeah. Almost like an interdimensional creature moving back into a different dimension. Yep. And you have to think, I've never, I mean, there's no stories in this that I'm aware of. I'm, I certainly cannot tell you I've read every Bigfoot story on the planet, but I've read a good many, and I'm not aware of any other such stories where the entity spoke in English. It gave a foreshadowing of something that was to come, tried to warn him away from it, and had it had he listened to this creature and left Texas and not gone to, gone to the Forsaken Fort, um, then he would have 
been in a much better place. He would not have died either there or somewhere near there. That That's extraordinarily curious. You know, that's... You got all kinds of thoughts going through my head there, dear. Well, <laughs> when I read it, I was, you know, equally... Um, excited i kept because and it actually spawned what will be another episode because there are these bizarre moments in history recorded either by the historical figure or their families or friends or people around them um and we'll talk about them in depth but there are stories about george washington there are stories of chamberlain um who was from the civil war and something that he saw there are stories of angels that came down and talked and warned and expressed what was going to happen um and so i thought well, we're going to do an episode on all of that and we'll we'll leave it more for that but um there are just some very extraordinary such stories and certainly this would be one that i would tuck into that genre as well because it was a foreshadowing of things to come given by a bigfoot yeah, and all your other stories, I mean, you hear, I mean, the, the, the common stories that you hear of them, you know, uh, just howls, you know, inhuman howls. Yes. Um, but nothing, nothing even resembling any type of cognitive speech. So that that's just extraordinary. Yeah. And, and, it's, a, mm-hmm. yeah, as, and it's in his own hand. He wrote this to his brother-in-law. So it isn't like, well, somebody 50 years later said, oh, you know what? Um, this was his own explanation for what he saw. So unless he unless he found some peyote when he was in Texas, you don't know. But I mean, that's you know, to, to even have that type of foreshadowing is 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 uh, yeah that that's that's paranormal. It's definitely <laughs> paranormal. Incredible. I just thought it was a fascinating story. So I wanted to pass that along as one of our Bigfoot stories, because it's a, definitely a different type of Bigfoot. And Teddy Roosevelt is another person who believed strongly in Bigfoot. He would, um, when he was young, I don't know if any, how many people know anything about Teddy Roosevelt, but he was a very weak and sickly child. And so he sat himself to the task of building up his body. If there's one thing about Teddy Roosevelt that anybody and everybody can admire, it's his grit. Like if somebody told him he couldn't do something or he was not able to do something, he would just sit there and work at it till he got it anyway. He just never took no for an answer. And um, he was a very sickly little boy, very weak and what have you. So he said about changing that and as a young young man, he did a tour of the American West, and he didn't, you know, travel in the accustomed style of, of one who was well-to-do. He he really did rough it, and he mm-hmm. lived with the cowboys, and he did everything the way everybody else did it. And it was at this point in time that he came across the story that sort of convinced him that there are Bigfoot. So he's sitting there, and he's talking to this um, old-timer, a guy by the name of Bauman. And they're sitting there passing the time of day. Like I said, it's the evening hours and what have you. And they're sitting by a fire and everybody's got a story to tell. And, you know, they pass on their ghost stories and their goblin stories and what have you. And then Bauman's turn comes up. And at first Bauman says, uh, I, I don't have nothing to say. And after a little cajoling, he finally says, look, I was born out here on the frontier and I've lived out here my whole life and starts getting real soft-spoken and real emotional. And he says, there's one thing that happened to me when I was young. I was up um, on Wisdom River and I was trapping with a buddy of mine. And we come to this pretty little valley. And we decided it was a good place. There was water running through it. There was plenty of wood. It was a good place to trap beaver and what have you. We figured we'd be able to fill our quota there. So he decided that um, they would they would build a camp. Well, the first place they stopped, there was uh, it was too rough and difficult to set up. So they walked a little further down in, and they found a really pretty little meadow, natural meadow. And they decided to camp there at the edge of the woods 
in that clearing area. And they did, and the first thing they did is build a little tiny lean-to so that they'd have a place to sleep because they weren't carrying tents and stuff like that. You didn't do that back then. And then they had some traps, and they wanted to set traps right away because that's their livelihood. So before dark, they decided to go out and set a dozen or so traps and then come back in and make a fire and get something to eat. And that's what they did. They went out and they set a few traps. They didn't get a whole dozen in. They got several, though, down around the pond, a couple, and down the, the river there, a few more. And they got, it was getting dark. And he said they had this uncomfortable feeling that they were being watched all the time. And anybody who's ever had that feeling, you know what I'm talking about. The hackles on the back of your neck stand up and you start looking around and you don't have to see anything. You just feel it like eyes climbing all over you. And they decided to go back and get something to eat and wait till daylight to set the rest of the traps. And they head back and when they get to the camp, their supplies are strewn all over and something has just broken up the, the lean-to they had just built and just torn it to shreds. Well, their first thought is there's somebody else in this valley. So the bombman makes a fire and starts getting some food and his partner tries to put back together the lean-to the best he can and then he grabs a piece of burning wood, a burning brand of wood and um, starts looking around at the footprints and he's like, they follow this one game trail. So he follows it out a ways and he comes back and he says to Bauman, there's something really crazy about these footprints. They're not human, but they're not a bear. And whatever this thing is, it's on two feet. It never drops down to four. And sure enough, after they eat, Bauman follows him out and he shows them. Like it goes for a good ways. And it's always a bipedal creature, whatever this thing is. So they go to sleep that night. And in the middle of the night, they hear some cracking of branches and some shuffling around and they get this feeling that there's something out there and finally end up sitting up for quite a while build up the fire a little bit they just don't want to sleep because it's just creepy no kidding <laughs> and um so in the morning they kind of laugh at themselves and they're like you know i thought we were hard and seasoned uh, outdoorsmen and here we are spooked by the deer running through the bushes. That's got to be what it was, just deer running through the bushes. So they take their uh, traps, go out and set the rest of their traps that day and check the traps they sat the night before. And um, if there's anything in them, they, you know, they take care of that too. You have to gut and, you know, clean and what have you. And so you can take the hides and, and pack them to be treated. And they get back to their, their little clearing and again, their stuff strewn all about and the and the lean-to is just smashed to smithereens beyond repair and again there's these footsteps and whatever was there it was like rolling around on the ground like you could see where the it had been um the dirt and dust had been disturbed and i'm sure that because um wallowing is a, is a trait of uh a lot of animals they probably were very familiar with it deer will do this goats will do this um bears will do this buffalo will do this they'll wallow that's what it means you just kind of dig yourself around in the dirt and get the dirt all over your fur it helps to cut down on um bugs and stuff like that that's why they do it in the wild and they're a little freaked out now and there's these footsteps again all around the thing so they gather stuff up build up the lean to and they get something to eat and they go to lay down and that's when they hear this the walking around the outside of the lean to in the back back in the darkness in the woods but they're hearing branches snapping they're hearing these sounds like something's like <laughs> and they'd never heard a sound like this before and it was a loud sound of just put the hair up on their head. Well, they finally decided that they were going to um, build up the fire real, real big. And they were going to take turns sitting up tonight with a gun in their hands, just in case whatever it was attacked them again. So they do that. By they, they hear it crashing all night. They hear the sounds all night. Whatever it is, it's like it's teasing or taunting them. It's exploring around them. And... By morning, they, they talk and they're like, we're getting out of here. 
let's go pull the traps and just pack up and let's just go. So they do, they go and uh, there's, they get all the stuff gathered up except for um, three traps that are out at the pond. And Bauman says, I'll tell you what, you finish packing the stuff up in the, in the bundles and I'll run out and grab them three traps and I'll come right back in. Well, he does, and they all three of them have hides in them, so it takes a little time to, you know, gut them and stuff. And he comes back, and there's the packs sitting there ready to slide back on their, their shoulders, and his buddy's missing. And he's looking around, and he's like, where the heck is he? And he just sees a little piece of cloth over there's these, this deadfall of a couple trees, the edge of the clearing. And he goes over, and he looks and immediately knows what happened. His buddy's laying there, his neck's broken, and there's this bite marks, four fang marks, as though it had ripped out at his artery. It didn't eat him, it just tore it out to kill him. And Bauman said, I knew he sat, he finished packing up and he sat down on that log looking out towards the area I'd be coming from, his back to the woods, Whatever this thing was, it snuck up there and it killed him. He said, I was so scared. I didn't bother with the packs. I didn't bother with the hides. I didn't bother with anything. I took off at a run and I got out of that valley. Whatever it was, we weren't supposed to be there. And it was making sure that we left one way or the other. Roosevelt talked about the palpable feeling of fear that this man exuded as he talked the sorrow in his voice when he talked about his friend and how he died. And he said that, you know, he would have adventures where he would hear things like this later on, but he was completely convinced this man was telling the truth. Did anyone ever go back and re retrieve the body of his friend or uh, did it just, that became his final resting place? I do believe it became his final resting place. You know, um, it just is, what, in that time frame, there wouldn't have been a lot of people, so heaven only knows if anybody stumbled across him and buried him or anything like that. But yeah, he never went back into that valley. So those are some of the classic stories of it that go way back. I have a story that comes from, I think it's 1820s. Hold on, and I will tell you as I pulled it up. It's in the book, and um, 1835. Okay. And it's... Um, of a Bigfoot, it's called the Whistling Bigfoot. And so it was 1835 and this guy was out picking berries and it's a beautiful hot summer day. This would be down around Philadelphia area. And he hears this um, whistling sound in a thicket, like a joy adjacent to the thicket he's in. And, you know, at that time period, he's thinking Indians, he's thinking people that could rob him. There's all kinds of stuff. So he's frozen and he's kind of looking around to see what's going on. And then he hears that whistling sound again behind him. And he turns around and he, he said he was shocked. A few feet away stood a small black hairy creature. The beast was maybe that height of an eight-year-old boy. But its entire body was covered with coarse black hair. It walked upright on two legs. And he had an idea that whatever this thing was, it was a young one. And he stared at the beast, and the beast stared at him, and then it pursed its lips and gave out a tentative little whistle, and turned and ran off, still whistling, and the man ran back toward town. There, yeah, yeah, that yeah, around around Philadelphia, Bucks County. That sounds like something from a M Night Shyamalan movie. It does, doesn't it? But this is actually a newspaper account, is where this came out of. Um, these ones I can tell you a little bit more about because I know exactly where I researched them. There is another one um, from that time frame. So one of the things that you, if you're reading a lot of books on the subject or you're doing a lot of research on the subject, you're going to come across is that um, Bigfoot has become very elusive in the lower 48 as a rule. And so wherever people end up coming in great quantities, after, after a little while, at first they're very curious and then they're aggressive and then um, they sort of just go into hiding. They learn to avoid humans. And you'll see that in 
if you go back in newspaper accounts, so in the Philadelphia area, actually it was in the Lancaster area, there's an account of a, of a Bigfoot that was stealing hams out of barns and <laughs> smokehouses. And one night there was a young man who was out gathering firewood when he encountered this creature and the creature attacked him and um, broke his leg and was trying to drag him off. And his sister, who heard him screaming, she was getting a bucket of water from the well, turned toward him, saw this big, black, hairy creature dragging her brother, who was about 12 or 13, into the woods. I mean, he didn't stand a chance against something seven foot tall. And she grabbed up a stick of wood and began beating its hands that was holding her brother and beating on it till it left go and took off. She would there would be a second story in the same area where um, the father went out and he was trying to get wood and same thing. Now they're they're cautious because they know it's out there. It's already attacked the boy and broke his leg. And she took a gun and was standing out there watching him get wood and it came out and came after him and she ended up shooting at it. She didn't she didn't know if she wounded it, but it scared it enough that they had a chance to flee. And I, um, you know, and so they were very aggressive in the East early on. There are still stories of them being aggressive in the Western part of the country. Go back to the 1920s. And um, there's a very famous story of five um, gold miners. They were up in the mountains there in Washington State. They were, they had a little gold mine. They had taken up residence in a little shack. And they were out in the woods when they came across one of these crazy, well, actually I think it was four of them that they saw together, but one of them got real close and it scared them and they shot at it and they wounded it. And it fell backwards and it was near the edge of a, a cliff and it stumbled down, tumbled backward in, from the shot and fell off the cliff. Well, they were just absolutely in terror about what had happened. So they went back to the cabin and decided they were going to wait it out and come daylight, they were going to walk out of there because they were afraid to go out at night. But during the night, their their cabin got attacked. They would say that large boulders um, and big stones were thrown on the cabin. Now, some of them said that the cabin ceiling, the roof caved in in one spot. Others would say that it didn't, but that they did agree that, that they threw these great big rocks. And come morning, um, the place looked like a war zone. They had torn up young trees and they had smashed up stuff on the porch they had been beating on the walls and gnawing on the the logs and they just they took off and they and they went down and they talked to the sheriff and the sheriff was taken back up and he would say he found nothing that he couldn't explain but then in the time frame you would have to say that was probably what he would have to say um because it's 1920s and um Nothing to see here. Move along. Yeah, just keep on going. <laughs> just don't even want to talk about it. I am not going to be the sheriff that said I looked for a Bigfoot. Mm -hmm. But the guys, all five, agreed, and they told the same story for the rest of their lives. That they were attacked by these things because they shot one of them and probably killed it. They did go back and look for the body, um, and it was gone. So I think that also speaks to the idea that they take their dead. Yeah, I had heard that as well. That's why we don't find them around or they even even think i mean there, there's so many scavengers in the woods you know that uh, i mean even larger animals like a bear when a bear dies i mean obviously their their kind doesn't take another bear away right but, you know the, the 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 you know there's definitely scavengers who would who would eat a bear but but you have left you're gonna have bones you know the scavengers don't take the bones you know the bones or the fur in a lot of cases too so right. you think that that would still exist so that's that lends well, to some type of intelligence where, I mean, they, they, they're cognizant of um, death, you know, that they, they, they understand what death is and they're cognizant of it and at least have that respect for their dead, which is interesting. At least that's my interpretation of this. Right. And I have to tell you, there was one of the Bigfoot shows that staked out a deer in the wild and they did a time lapse of it. And in less than a week, it was down to fur and bones. And then the fur and the bones were carted off. Animals were pulling the fur um, in pieces and taking it for bedding in their nests and stuff like that. 
and the bones were getting carried away by scavengers that were then breaking them open and eating the marrow. So it was very uh, interesting how quickly that deer disappeared. Hmm, that is, I, I don't think I've, I've seen or heard that. But yeah. yeah, it was, I'm trying to think, um, was the one that... Yeah, when they're on they, the roadside, they seem there like way more than a week. <laughs> yeah. But they actually did do that, and it was really interesting. They put it out in the woods, and they just staked it down and left it lay, and then they did like a time lapse on it and left cameras on it all the time, and very quickly, it was gone. There was very little sign of it, a little bits of fur if you were looking for it. That was about it after about a week and a half. But they actually, it sunk down into the point where um, like there was no discernible parts of it within a week and then that's whenever the small predators came and pulled the rest of it apart and took it away because everything was to be used you know oh yeah it's the way of nature it is indeed it's um just how life works so i also wanted to talk about um i don't know if you remember you remember rob Lowe, the actor absolutely Okay. Yes, he, Rob, I believe he's just a year older than I am, or, or okay. right, right about the same. So. so he did a paranormal show for a couple seasons, which was, um, he produced it, directed it, and had all creative control from what I understand. And it was about him and his two teenage boys going out looking for the paranormal. And he would tell some stories about having been charged by a Bigfoot um, in the Ozark Mountains. Um, there's an actual piece of video footage where they have a black... It looks like a black ape behind, back in the woods watching them as they're filming. Um, so he's had a few different encounters as well. And he talks about them. Some of them, I, I just thought it was interesting. You, you can go, there's actually a website where he talks about it. You can watch the episodes, stuff like that. I'm, I must have completely missed that. But you can look up the low files on the internet. Now, I think they're on probably on YouTube and places like that. You should be able to get some of the episodes. I will do in my otherwise copious spare time. <laughs> oh, yes. The, the spare time that's almost virtually non-existent for yes, you. That, God that, love you. Uh, that, that was that, just a hint of sarcasm on, on, on a lot of spare time there. Yeah. I, I get the same. I have the same issue. Trust me. There's a thousand things I want to do and I never have time for. But... But I, I just thought it was, um, they were interesting because he has like had three or four events that were um, noteworthy in that, in the field of Bigfoot, where he talked about one that he thought this thing was charging him and coming at him. And he was afraid it was going to kill him when they were out in the woods. Hmm. So it's something to see. Um, Survival Man, Les Stroud, Survivor Man, he um, has shared, you know, he's been in the woods a lot. And he used to try to ditch the, the question, and I believe he and Joe Rogan got drunk one night and decided to film an episode. And oh because my. he was because liquor loosed his tongue, he said, "Oh, let me tell you. I've been even though I don't tell anybody this stuff." And he let loose with some of the stuff he has seen out there. So there's some really interesting. There's a Joe Rogan um, episode, and um, and he now he actually hosted a TV show about hunting for Bigfoot, about two or three seasons of it as well. So you can look that up. I've, I know that's on there because I bumped into it multiple times today when I was looking up some stuff. Okay. Um, so, yeah, I just I thought that was interesting. And, and, I, and I love that backstory and how he, he got to talking about it. He and Joe Rogan plied him with a bit of alcohol. And the next thing you know, and it's a funny episode because they are drunk <laughs> and they're giddy and they're like, oh, wait a second, let me tell you. You know, kind of. A thing. But then he sobered up and he said, yeah, it's true. Go ahead and tell him. It's okay. You signed the release. It's, <laughs> it's too late now, right? Yeah. So, but yeah, they, they went back to a studio and got drunk and told spooky stories all evening. So it's a funny episode, though. So if you get a chance to look it up, I highly recommend it. Yeah, it was um, it was really cute. So there's, so there's a lot of people we know who have had these stories, but not everybody that sees a Bigfoot's famous. And we had talked just a little bit ago about how Bigfoot is much less aggressive in places where there, there's a lot more humans. But Alaska is one of those places where there aren't a lot of humans, even today. And you're still getting stories from Alaska of very 
aggressive encounters. I'm not sure if you're familiar with this lady. I love her. I loved her books. Her name is Norma Cobb, and I think she's passed away by now. She was a, a very elderly. But when she was young, Norma Cobb was quite a character. She and her husband heard that you could still file for land under the Homestead Act, that it still existed in the early 1970s. So they decide, you know, the economy sucks and he's can't they can't make ends meet with the job he's working and it's a dead end type job. So they decide that they're going to go up there to Alaska, claim a piece of homestead land, which is like 40 acres, and be settle it. You have to prove it out, which means you have to make it improvements to it, which a house and a garden and that, that's improvements. And if things get rough financially, he'll go work on the oil rigs, the finance, whatever. So they took everything they had, sold it, put their, I think it was five kids in this old pickup truck with whatever it is that they took with them, strapped down to this pickup truck and headed off. Wow. Okay. That's a haul too. Yeah. Especially yeah. driving. Yeah. So they get there. And they find the piece of ground that he had filed for because he did it while he was still in the lower 48. But you had to just pick it off a map. You couldn't see it. I mean, you didn't have the ability to go look at it. And he picked this horrible piece of ground that was just oh. untenable. So now they're stuck there with this piece of ground that they can't even sell. And they can't live on it because it's not good enough to grow crops on or, you know, the things that they need to have to survive. So they decide that Norma is going to file and Norma Cobb would become the last homesteader in the entire country in 1973. Nice. And they moved to this remote place in Alaska. Um, they had gotten a chance to drive up and see this place. They knew that this was it. This was their last shot and they knew this was okay. And Norma wrote a book called Arctic Homestead. It's a really great book. I've read it probably 20 times in my life. It's a really good book. For anybody who has an independent spirit or who can admire an independent spirit, these people risked literally their lives and their children's lives every day they were in Alaska. But they built up a great homestead and they ended up building up to the point where like you could go up there and her book became kind of a cult classic and people would pay to go up and stay at there. They had like a little uh, ranch motel type thing and she would show you how to do stuff and you could have coffee with Norma and she'd tell you stories and it would be worth a trip for me because I, I was a big fan. Hmm. But in her book, Artie Homestead, it's not a big part of the book, but there are some Bigfoot stories because they encountered it at their home. Um, on different occasions because the Bigfoots were curious about these people building a homestead there and um, driving the kids in and out, you know, to go to school whenever they could get them out to school. And when they couldn't, they'd have to homeschool them and it's that sort of thing. So eventually she becomes, they would go to town for um, every so often for supplies. And it was a big deal to go to town for everybody, for the Inuits, for the anybody, because unless you live there, you know, this was the only time you got to see strangers and talk to somebody besides each other. And frankly, they're all sick of talking to each other by now. So great, it was a great idea to go to town. So she went to town and she was invited to join a, like a quilting, this group of ladies that would get together and what have you. So she was so excited and she went and she was, you know, she was at the quilting and she's sewing and talking and laughing and talking. She always wondered about this Bigfoot creature. And she wanted to ask if anybody else had ever seen anything like it. So eventually she works her nerve up and she asks. And there's this elderly lady, a native lady, who's sitting there sewing and laughing with everybody. And the minute she brings it up, like the native people all get real quiet. And the woman gets up and starts to cry and runs out of the room. And she's like, I'm so sorry. I, I don't know what I did. I'm so sorry. And one of the native women leans over and pats her on the hand and says, you didn't know. It's okay. We know you didn't know. But they tell her this story that when, years ago, when this young, this woman who was crying, when she was a young woman, her sister was taken by the Bigfoot, oh. was kidnapped. And um, 
for like four or five years, she was a teenager at the time, for like four or five years, they thought she was dead. And then some hunters came upon her out in the woods and they captured her, but by now she's feral. And she keeps screaming she wants to go home. They think home is back in the village. And she means home to her Bigfoot. And they get her back there. They try talking to her. She said she's married to this Bigfoot, that she has a baby with this Bigfoot. Um, like she's telling this crazy ass tale that nobody believes. They lock her in a room because she keeps trying to escape. And her family's trying to figure out what to do with her, you know, to get her mental help. And she does escape and goes back, and now nobody ever sees her again. Wow. I mean, wrong side of the planet for Stockholm Syndrome. Holy cow. Yeah. That brings up another thought. I mean, so interspecies breeding, unless you have compatible DNA, isn't going to happen. Exactly. So, if, if again, if that story is true, and I go, here's the, there's the scientific tech guy in me. Right. That means that Bigfoot has to be, in some ways, DNA compatible with human beings. Possibility. It is. And and we know that they steal. There's another story that came from a, it's a, a website that does a lot of uh, Bigfoot stories. And it was a story from 95, I believe it was, of a man who him and his wife were married. And they lived in Alaska. Him and his wife got married. And they were going to go on a honeymoon. Now, in Alaska, a lot of people travel by plane rather than car because it's so much easier to travel through the air than it is to deal with the snow so he's a, a lot of people like we get our driver's license they get their plane license right mm -hmm. and um he had his plane license and he had a little plane and they're going and the weather gets really rough and he says to his his new new wife we're gonna have to put down here for the night and he has a big thermal tent and all the stuff to do it he knows what he's up to so they put down and there's a the, the plane has the pontoons on it, so he lands on this little little lake. There's thousands of these little lakes all over Alaska and all over Canada. He lands on this little lake, and he floats it into the shore, and he helps her out, and he gets her the tent and stuff, and he's like, you go ahead and start that. I'll start schlepping the supplies and stuff we're going to need for the night and the sleeping bags and a little bit of food, that sort of thing. So she's setting up the tent, and all of a sudden, he hears this horrible scream. He turns around, and he looks. And he's, you know, his arms are filled with supplies. And there's this big, hairy ape man. And he's got a hold of his this guy's wife. And he's carrying her away. Well, the guy runs after him. And this thing outdistanced him. It seems like it could, it could travel in the snow much better than he could. He realizes the only thing he can do is go get the gun. Maybe he can shoot it and scare it and it'll drop her. So he runs back to the plane, gets the gun. Goes back out, tries to find her, realizes he's not going to be able to find her. And he's stuck there for the whole night. As soon as he radios in and says that he needs help, you know, please send somebody. But they have to wait till the storm lifts. And the next day, the, there's some people come out to help him. And they never find her. She's never found. So in some places, they're, we think of them as cute. You know, the Harry and the Hendersons kind of thing. This cute giant that, you know, we just misunderstand. But there are many different types. And this is, and as you look at the, if you put a map out and you go, well, as white, as people's society and civilization crept further and further westward, you kept bumping into these stories. And they were raw stories, like I just told, rough stories. And then they got more, um, domesticated and more fr frightened of humans and learned how to live with us or to live around us without us noticing too much. So it, the encounters became different. But there are still, in Pennsylvania, there are still some very bizarre stories, I can tell you. Um, and we'll save those for another evening because, believe me, there's a lot of stories yet to tell. But All I right. just wanted to share a few of these. And if anybody's interested in Norma Cobb's book, I'm sure you can still pick it up. And it's a phenomenal book. And somewhere in the middle of it, she tells that story. If I can find a link, I'll put it down below in the description. If you're listening to this in the audio format, I'll, it'll be on the audio format information. And on, on video, I'll, I'll do, do it below the, uh, the YouTube video. And just before we end, um, I would like to let everybody who listens know that you are 
literally the reason this podcast exists today. And I want everybody to know how grateful I am to you. And if you love the podcast, say hi to Stu, because believe me, he's doing all the hard work. I get to tell stories and have fun. And he's the guy that sits there and edits and does all the production and everything. And I just want everybody to know how, how blessed I am to have you as a friend and to get to do this with you. Well, thank you, Patty. I, this is a labor of love for me. I mean, this is, yeah, I, I love the topic. And, uh, you know, so there, there's nothing. Yeah, I'm, I'm doing what I can. I appreciate it so <laughs> to much. Put the, to put forth the effort. So and I just um, want everybody else to know how, how important you are to the whole project. Oh, thanks, Patty. I do appreciate that. So, uh, so if you could, please, listeners, viewers, hit that subscribe button on YouTube. If you find us through Facebook, whatever venues, uh, please tell your friends, you know, and if you do go to the YouTube page and subscribe, click the bell. Uh, whenever we put out new content, you'll get notified. Uh, we do that as soon as I can. Like I said, in the last episode, we both have day jobs. We're both doing what we can. So it's, um, and sometimes I have to have a burden of a cat on my chest too while I'm, well, I'm. She's no well, burden. We know you love her dearly. Oh, I do, but she's so heavy. <laughs> I have to use both arms after a while. So, yeah, and this is Miss Cassie. So uh, the description will have to say appearing also is uh, Miss Cassie. Yes. So, yeah, Patty, that's uh, wonderful stories today, and I, I was looking forward to this episode. So, uh, I'm. I'll, I'll try to get this out as soon as we can, so that people can enjoy it as well. And we will definitely visit this topic again, because like I said, we haven't even begun to scratch the surface. Alrighty. Well, with that, I will bid you adieu and uh, a good rest of your day. Bye-bye, honey. Okay, bye.